Hello, and happy Vietnam Veterans Day. This week I sat down with Robin Bartlett. He's the author of Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. He's a great guest, and he was kind enough to share his experiences with us. I was careful not to dig too deeply into his book so the reader can get a full experience firsthand. But we were able to give you a feel for what it was like for a 22-year-old kid, really, to walk into this strange place and lead men into danger. Welcome to the Political Party Pooper Playbook. And if you thought all we did was sit around thinking up ways to poop on empty suit politicians, well, you'd be half right. And there's the man. How are you, Robin? Good morning. Can you hear me? I can. How you doing? How you doing, man? It's good to see you. Good to see you. How's the book going? Well, today I just got a phone call from uh, the freelance uh, uh, person who works with me to help me promote my book that I'm going to be interviewed by the the Bergen Record newspaper, which is owned by USA Today. So maybe there's a chance nice. for some local as well as you never can tell. Maybe maybe they'll uh, like the story and push it out to uh, USA Today. That could that would be very nice. Get some syndication out of the deal. That's awesome. Man. Yeah, that's great. I should be so lucky one day. I just want to make sure you see my shirt here. Oh, nice. Is that new? Oh, yeah, my son gave it to me for Christmas, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, um, we're here for round two. I will, I will insert background story on why it's round two later. I, I tell people I think the problem, there was a screw loose in front of my computer. That was the that was the problem that day. I, I think you had recorded, but then when we lost connection, we forgot to re-record. Um, I figured it out the other day. I was doing an interview with uh, Patricia De Janeiro, and I was kind of the same thing. I was going through all my settings real quick, and I had I had paused the tape, but when I went back to unpause, you get a little pause symbol and a little square symbol. I hit the square symbol, and that turned it off. It just stopped it. Okay, so anyway, um, I've been cautioning people for weeks with all the stuff that's in the headlines, and now Patricia's got me freaking out about the Balkans. Things could come unglued very rapidly. And we have people, just regular everyday folks, talking about the potential for conflict. Memories fade. Reality sometimes escapes us so it's easy to have that conversation say oh yeah let's go let's go stomp ass on the russians or uh we can kick the chinese ass we can take care of taiwan i want people to get a boots on the ground feel for what they're talking about and that's that's why i asked you to come on and be a guest at uh, p4b i want to bring the realities of what all this could happen you know what what could occur if relations do break down and, and, and what people with older children or young adults of, of uh, military age should be thinking about right now. In that regard, you were uh, a member of the air cab in Vietnam as a very young man. We have that picture. I swear to God, you look like you're, you look like you're 14 in that picture. It's so scary. I see my grandsons in that picture. And, uh, uh, what if, if you could if you could take us back to maybe we'll, we'll start with that first day you just showed up and you're still in your nice clean uniform they gave you back in the world and you you step off the plane into Vietnam what was that experience like well I, as most vets uh, who've been to Vietnam will relate you're, you're struck by two things as you get off the airplane and and uh, before you get off the airplane, they ask you to shut the uh, uh, the shutters on the windows so that they can keep uh, uh, some of the cooler air inside the vehicle, inside the, the cabin. And as you get off, replacements are lining up to get on. And, of course, there's a lot of hoot and hollers going back and forth as 
the new fresh FNGs uh, walk off the plane and the new ones take their seats. And then we huddled in a, um, uh, a kind of a hangar, an outdoor hangar. We were not inside. And the two things that hit you the most are just this incredible, awful smell. Smells like a sewer. Um, and that seemed to permeate uh, any city in, in Vietnam. They just didn't, I guess they didn't have very good sewer systems, but there was this incredible, awful sewage smell and the heat. Uh, it, it No one was prepared for that heat. That The average temperature of 105 to 115 degrees, and it took three weeks to what they call acclimatize and become used to it. Was that, so that year was, round? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, the monsoon season, it would get cooler <clears throat> and it would it would rain. Um, so it would cool off for, for periods of time. But for the most time, and especially if you were in the jungle up by the Laotian border, the humidity was just atrocious. And I had to be very cautious uh, on a daily basis uh, for men, especially those that carried heavy loads like the machine gun, the radio operator, M79 grenade launcher. Um, they, they'd just keel over. They would, you know, we all drank water. We, we tried to keep uh, um, keep hydrated, but we only carried about a gallon and a half to two gallons of water. And you could go through that by 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I remember those radios. Was it Prick 77? Is that what you guys were carrying? 25. And wow. then 25. <laughs> 25s and then 35s. The thing, what, it weighed about 35 pounds, right? And then they had to carry two extra batteries. So the radio operator was, he had a tough, tough job. My radio operator yeah. was this slim, tough little guy. And um, he moaned and groaned and bitched about his, uh, about this heavy load. And finally, at the bottom of a hill one day, I said, okay, that's it. I'm tired of all this. We're switching packs. <laughs> I'll show I you. I carried his <laughs> pack up to the top of that hill and after that experience, I never said another word to him ever. Man, that's awesome. And 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 the guys did it. That's what amazes me. Yep. Stuff the guys put up with day after day. And they did it and they got through it. Yeah. Most of them. Yeah, they did. It was pretty crazy. Um I wanted okay. to go back quickly to one of the things you, you mentioned at the very beginning. And yeah. I just recently listened to uh, um, a testimony from a Green Beret in front of Congress talking about the uh, evacuation uh, of in Afghanistan and, and what a, a, a terrible experience it had it was. And, of course, the same is true for Vietnam, too. Correct. It, it was a horrendous uh, evacuation, and it's never successful. No matter how hard you try, you're going to leave people behind. And we did in both both instances but uh it, it, unfortunately you know there, there's no easy way out and what what occurred to me in listening to this um testimony in front of congress by this green beret was we have never learned the lessons of the past we have no. never learned the lessons of world war ii of korea of vietnam and we repeated them again in afghanistan that's correct, because we go about them with the same philosophy. Uh, uh, Patricia, I, I, I'm going to keep pinging her because she's a uh, a national security and foreign relations expert. Um, she was a huge get for the show. But she said a couple of things, and and they were true from Korea all the way to the end of Afghanistan and Iraq. In this, In the case of Afghanistan, there was a prevailing uh, uh, notion in everybody's head over there, especially the contractors, was we're not really pulling out. You know, Trump's doing his thing, you know, but Biden's in now. When Biden's in office, we're cranking it back up. The war machine is back. Even though Biden was saying, I'm getting out, I'm leaving. That's why there was something on the order of 2,500 military left and 200,000 contractors were still in place waiting for the big day when Joe came back and we started up again. Um, we have no clear-cut vision of victory and strategy. And I think that's what that was the burden you guys carried in Vietnam. Sure. 
I mean, in, in World War II, you had VE Day and you had VJ Day, and yeah. it was over, and people celebrated, and they came home. Right. I mean, we didn't, you know, when you're fighting a guerrilla war, similar to what we fought in 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 these other in Korea and Afghanistan and Vietnam, there is no end. There never was an end. No. And 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 it must have left you guys, the guys who left Vietnam, must have had the most nagging, incomplete feeling inside. Periodically, through each podcast episode, you will see or hear ads for sponsors and affiliates that support the program. It's how your lovely host maintains his healthy supply of Spam and SpaghettiOs. Of course, you do have a means to get all content ad-free. By becoming a P4B Plus subscriber, I'll provide a button or a link below in the media line. You'll do away with the ads. And for our loyal subscribers who stay with us for 90 days or more, there's a nice premium offer as a thank you. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't I can't get in your head, but I, 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 I could imagine. Like we had talked earlier, I, I said. Uh, you had to lose that vision of marching into Hanoi and and shooting General Jack, you know, being the hero. That was never going to happen. By 68, we knew that was never going to happen. And then well, you leave. Well, mm-hmm. and, and what frustrated um, me, and I guess I knew this all along, but being there, it became a reality, was the war in South Vietnam was very similar to the state of California. And you, we fought throughout the state of California, that size um, amount of terrain. Mm-hmm. But the enemy could go into Nevada and Oregon yeah. and, uh, uh, and and the South, and, and, and we couldn't follow them. Once we hit the state line, that was it. You couldn't go over the state line. couldn't chase them. You couldn't eliminate their supply lines. And it, it just became a waste. That, so many vets came home thinking, what a waste. What a waste in terms of men and material, a waste of, of everything. Lives, uh, yeah. Give me a sec. That cough is still bugging me. I yeah. think I'm stuck with it. It's the meds make me stuffy and and froggy. That's my voice is froggy. I have a very sweet singing voice, actually. <laughs> okay, well let's let's you celebrate on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I, on St. Patrick's Day, I was uh, I created a video and a uh, uh, audio of uh, Patricia. And I got this idea in my head to create a free uh, uh, and paid version and breaking the, the thing up so that advertisements would be in the in the free version, which is a great idea. But it's a whale of a lot of work. I didn't I didn't celebrate St. Patrick's Day till about 1130 at night. So I about a half hour of Irish joy. But I did break out the good <laughs> stuff. But um yeah, let's let's go back to a a thirty thousand foot view now of Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam that you found when you got there. What were we doing at the time? Well, of course, it was right after the Tet Offensive of nineteen sixty eight, and before what they called the Mini Tet that that happened uh, about two to three months after that. And um, uh, I was uh, on orders as an I was with had been with the eighty second Airborne Division. And most of the officers who came over with me on that on those flights uh, were also from the 82nd Airborne Division. We were re- replacement platoon leaders. Um, we were on orders for the 101st Airborne Division, and they wanted to keep airborne officers uh, with airborne units. And when we arrived, we were told all orders are canceled because there had been so many casualties of officers throughout Vietnam. And uh, waited around for two to three days taking showers and just trying to cope with the heat, walking around in shorts and T-shirts just uh, to uh, to adjust, to try to adjust. And then finally uh, got orders for the 1st Cav Division. And uh, my brother had actually been with the 1st Cav Division, so I knew a little bit about him. 
he had been very seriously wounded. He was an artillery officer. So he had been there before me. And um, it, it was a great unit to join, to be honest with you. Tremendous morale, tremendous uh, esprit de corps. Um, and, and it was nice because you got to carry lighter weight packs. I carried an ev- a pack which weighed about 45 pounds compared with some of my colleagues uh, who carried packs that were 65 and 70 pounds. And that was because we got resupplied by helicopter. We had more helicopters in that division than than any other uh, unit in Vietnam. In fact, all, more helicopters in that division than in all of Vietnam. So that was the nice part, that you carried more water, more ammunition, and less weight. But they also combat assaulted you, helicopter combat assaulted you into uh, suspected enemy locations. And that was the whole idea behind the air mobile concept. This is the the, the price you pay for those little blessings right. of light packs and such. As opposed to having troops walk on the ground to, to interdict the enemy, they flew you into a, a landing zone which was hopefully as close as they could get you to the enemy uh, to contact. Location. Yeah. 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 You, you mentioned when we were, when we were uh, doing pre-show, you mentioned the short notice you would get on some of these, some of these uh, air assault. Correct. Uh, and what little information, tell me how that works. Well, I, and I, I guess uh, there were a couple of, instances when i was uh, on my daily mission whatever it might be and i would get a radio call from the company commander and he would say find an lz we've got uh, birds inbound and they're picking you up in 20 minutes so we had to find an open area where we could bring in four to six helicopters to land um we i also pulled responsibility for quick reaction force and that meant hanging out at the airfield for an entire day my platoon ready to go and I was waiting for a mission uh, where intelligence would say, we've we've spotted an enemy force. Let's go get them. And that happened to me one time. And w- within minutes, uh, my platoon was loaded. I mean, it took the, the amount of time it took for the pilots to run out of their air conditioned offices and get the helicopters up and running was the amount of time uh, we had to load and get on the helicopters and a 20 minute flight out to. A landing zone. I got my briefing en route. I got the location en route. Um, in this particular case, I had the uh, S1 come running out to me. He's the intelligence officer. And he said, uh, he gave me about a five minute speech and said, you know, this is what we expect you will find. Um, we want you, the battalion commander will be flying overhead. And we want you in the first helicopter. Of course, I rode in the first helicopter every time it was my turn to lead the assault. Uh, and and to upon landing, say LZ is green or, or we're in contact. And um, uh, the, if we were in contact, then they would not risk additional helicopters to come in. We had to fight it out on our own until they could land at an alternate landing zone. They wouldn't want to risk the other helicopters to come in if, if the LZ was hot. That, that's not the first time I've heard that. I've I've read over the years. I still have them. They're probably in the garage somewhere. A whole series of books on um, Vietnam experiences, especially guys who were hitting hot LZs. And there's just no way. <laughs> Your first couple of times, there is no way you can mentally prepare for something like that, especially well, if it's hot. The enemy liked to shoot down the second helicopter. So they'd let the first one come in and the men jump off and then they'd take out the second helicopter. And and whoever survived that crash joined the first group and then you just had to fight it out. Now, there was a lot of preparation of the LZ before you landed. There was artillery prep and there was usually helicopter Cobras, helicopters flying overhead to support the landing. And you could talk to those pilots and direct them um, as to where the fire was coming from. Uh, but there was, you know, you had to be very careful about marking your location so that they didn't shoot you. And these helicopter pilots, the Cobra pilots, could bring their their rockets and their minigun in very, very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had to be very cautious about that. And yeah. popping but, smoke also revealed your position to the enemy. Right, right. 
and but and the 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 uh, the fact is they're shooting through a through a canopy too. You know, uh, they have an idea of where where they want things to go. Um, I, in, I just I just can't if imagine you jungle. If you were in jungle, they, they the support was extremely difficult. They could not see you. They could not find you, and there was always danger of being shooting your own men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. We'll reduce it down to an individual level. You're a junior officer. You're 22. And the second oldest in your unit. That's that's crazy. Um, at a company level, you were with how many platoons? Three. Three platoons. Three platoons in my company. And you guys would rotate patrol obligations. Well, each comp- each platoon would have patrol obligations every day. So that would be kind of a cloverleaf. One one platoon would go out, say, to the north, one to the uh, you do a, a, a third of the of the perimeter and you'd go out and um, search the area. You would go out five, six, seven kilometers and then circle back around. That was when you were stationary at a night defensive position. When we were moving from a night defensive position to another night defensive position, each platoon would follow a different route. But there was actually four platoons. There was a, a mortar platoon, too, which carried one tube. And that's where the company commander would also would go with the mortar platoon. That was a smaller unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but each platoon would follow a different route from point A to point B, from one night defensive position, NDP, to the next uh and and you on the route you would make you would stop because you knew you had to set up an ambush that night so you would set up you would make a big to-do over several different ambush locations why because we knew they were looking at us they were spotting us they were well hidden and they knew our techniques they knew our strategy they knew what we were doing but if we if we made a big to-do over Four, three or four different ambush locations, they would not know which one we ultimately chose. At least that's what we believed. Okay. We <laughs> and sometimes it might have worked. Sometimes it um, worked, sometimes it didn't. Now, again, like I said, you're a young kid, you're 22, um, and you're leading other pretty much kids. Draftees. Draftees. For the most part. For yeah. the most part. And you're making life and death decisions. <clears throat> Not all those decisions worked out the way you would want them to. I know you, in your book, you said by, by 68 uh, officers, especially junior mid-level officers, were now thinking my job is to take care of my troops. To get the job done, of course, the best we can, but to get the troops home. But that doesn't always happen. What did you have to deal with at the age of 22 in that regard? Well, I I would say that that was my attitude, the one you just described. I don't know necessarily if it was the attitude of every um, platoon leader. We were all exceptionally well trained. Um, Mm -hmm. Ranger school was the best insurance policy that that all of us had. And we were we were tough. We were well trained. We were extremely physically fit. We were all airborne qualified and gung-ho going over but um my platoon sergeant who is supposed to be the most experienced man in the unit was what they called an instant nco and he had he had gone through uh, a six-month training course at fort benning georgia and was promoted to platoon sergeant yeah we called him push buttons or or shake and bake yeah (laughs) and he had his 19th birthday in Vietnam, my platoon sergeant was 19 years old. He's supposed to have 10 years of experience. So he and I had about the same level of experience. But my squad leaders and my platoon sergeant had been there before me. And, and one of the smart things I did, I did, I tried not to do stupid things. <laughs> Occasionally, I did a couple of stupid things, but was lucky. Um, but the smart thing I did was to sit down with them at the very beginning of my tour as their leader and say, OK, what happened to my predecessor and what do I need to do to survive this my tour? Because they had they had the experience and, and they also were very concerned about how gung ho I was, because, as you said, 
minute ago, there was a transition that right. was happening. Yeah. And th- it, these soldiers wanted to get through their tour as much as I wanted to get through my tour. Yeah, reality has to sink in a little bit, I guess. So I listened to what they had to say. That was one thing I did. I listened to what they had to say, and I trusted them. Of, uh, of course, if if decisions had to be made, I I had to make them. In a firefight, you you cannot hug the ground and pray. That that is assured destruction. So you had to give orders. And in a firefight, every set of eyes in that unit turned to you. And and they wanted direction. They wanted orders. They wanted the leader to decide right or wrong to make a decision. Yeah. Anything, anything other than, like you said, hugging the ground is a better decision than hugging the ground. Correct. The question is some are better than others. Had 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 you ever seen a platoon with poor leadership and the damage that did? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in, in an ambush situation, if you're being ambushed, you, you must attack the enemy. And, and that's going to cause casualties. There's no way around having casualties in an ambush situation. Um, and, and some platoon leaders were just so gung-ho. They wanted body count. That was the metric by which platoon leaders were measured. Company commanders were measured. Battalion commanders were measured. Body count. And um, they, they wanted, at the end of the battle, they wanted to see, you know, 20 to 1. Yeah, thank you, Robert McNamara <clears throat> and his stupid spreadsheets. How does that change a man? I mean, again, I, I keep going banging away at the age issue, but we'll just put that aside now. But you're, you're, a, you're a platoon leader. You get ambushed or you set an ambush. And you suffer casualties. What is that like? What 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 are the realities of it? I know it's not like a an army movie. Well, the 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 standard operating procedure would be to overcome the enemy situation and to attack and and uh, overcome the enemy. But if I had men wounded, especially if they were severely wounded. Uh, and it was a life and death situation, I, I guess I would not have been a very good commander because my priority was always um, the the life of my soldiers. And I would secure my position, sometimes pull back, secure my position, and call for a medevac. That was my priority. And, and my men came to know that. They came to believe that. If we were walking through an area, I trusted my point man and his cover man I trusted their intuition, and if they felt uncomfortable about moving into an area, you know, there was no birds singing, there were no jungle noises, there were no monkeys screeching, um, I, I did something called reconnaissance by fire, and I would <laughs> shoot our, I would shoot artillery rounds. I read that. In front of us. You, you, you became an ace at using artillery. I shot so much artillery that they ended up putting a budget on me. <laughs> I could shoot 25 rounds and no more. Wow. And, but when we walked through that area, my soldiers had a higher degree of confidence uh, about uh, about this misgiving that they might have uh, walking right. through the area. And 25 rounds, that's a lot of big bullets. Well, you know. so, of course, you had to adjust a few of them, too. So, yeah. Yeah, make sure they didn't fall on your forehead. Um, make sure they landed in the right place. There was a there was a uh, 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 a chapter title in your book, "My Worst First Day." Give me give me the the thumbnail of that. Well, my first worst day in Vietnam occurred when I lost my first soldier, my first KIA, and. It, it was a gung-ho soldier who wanted to get his medal, wanted to get a body, wanted to make a kill, and he just did some stupid things. And they brought him back, and uh, it was my responsibility as the platoon leader to put this man, um, to get him ready to go back home. And uh, he had been shot in the head, 
And I had to go through his pockets, make sure there wasn't anything there that shouldn't be there, and take out any papers that would be put in a plastic bag to go back to the battalion to be returned to the family or evaluated. And uh, my medic gave me a, a three by five card, which we called the death card. And and you write his name and social and his um, uh, dog tag number on it. And the coordinates where the closest coordinates to where he died, sign it. And that card had a little string on it. And you tie it to his boot along with one dog tag. And uh, we didn't have body bags, so so we had to wrap him in a poncho, and and you couldn't afford to have the ponchos um, flap around from the helicopter backwash. So I I carried a ball of uh, twine, and I would tie off the the poncho at the head and around the waist and around the the feet, so that the boots were hanging out the bottom. My men wouldn't want to do that. I, I guess they, there was some suspicion, superstition that perhaps they'd be next. I don't know. It was my job. I can I can see where if you're in a position to refuse or to deny the kind of authority that you would want to wave that one off and 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 not be a part of that uh, uh, activity. However, there's one little tidbit, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. Um, where the coordinates and everything start to make sense. I didn't understand why it was so damn important to write the coordinates down, but that comes into play later. And we'll talk about that. One of the most direct ways the P4B is supported is through Poe River furniture and yard games. I won't get too specific about who runs Poe River, but he's really good looking and his initials are Matt Jordan. There are a number of one-of-a-kind pieces that I created, including very nice wine stoppers and what I call recycled pallet art. There's also a huge selection of gifts that I designed and had made off-site. Occasionally, you will see yard games listed. That will depend on how often this podcast allows me to be in the shop. I'll leave a link or a button below so you can shop Poe River. It wasn't, uh, I mean, it, there, there were actual light moments that you talk about. Uh, the the FNG back at, I don't know if it was a company or battalion level, I guess battalion. Base camp, yeah. You got you to gotta tell the folks that story. That's an awesome story. Well, the, an FNG is a effing new guy. And we watched them very, very carefully for the first three, four weeks just to make sure that they weren't too uh, squirrely and that they settled down and, and were prepared to fight. There was a lot of, uh, obviously, nervousness uh, for everyone, uh, but especially when you were new. And they, they often were carrying way too much weight, and, and we had to get them adjusted. And on base camp, it was the FNGs that got the, uh, the duty of cleaning out the latrines. And these were um, wooden structures built by the engineers and the way they took care of the refuse um, was that they cut a 55-gallon drum in half, and they had a little trap door in the back of the latrine, and they put these half-gallon drums underneath each of the seats. So it was usually a two-seater. And once a day, uh, an FNG would be assigned to go and get um, diesel fuel from where, where it was kept in these big, giant bladders, and take um, a 105 millimeter round, uh, the casing for the 105 millimeter round, and fill it with diesel fuel. Pull out the old can, put in the new, ca- a fresh can, and then pour half of the diesel fuel into one can and half into the other. Step back, light a match, and toss it in, and that would burn all the refuse. And I'm sorry, one, I know the story, so it's killing we me. We had right. one FNG that we sat down, the platoon sergeant carefully explained exactly oh. what he was to do, get the get the 105 millimeter, go to the artillery department, where the artillery was, and get the round, fill it with diesel fuel, pull the old can out, put the fresh one in, and then 
pour the diesel fuel. And, and he followed those instructions to the T, except the diesel fuel was stored right next to the aviation gas, and that's gasoline. And he didn't know the difference. So he filled the canister with gasoline, with aviation fuel. And he pulled the canisters back, but only about five to eight feet. And so pouring half into each can and step back, threw a match in, and it exploded. And the whole area was covered with shit. <laughs> Blew it 50 meters. And we saw this happening. We, I mean, we didn't see him pull the gasoline, but when it happened, we realized what he had done. And, the, and of course, the, the latrine caught on fire, too. You saw these men running out of burning a latrine and the, it burned down the latrine. So um, he he was assigned duty to help the engineers rebuild the latrine for the next week. <clears throat> and we didn't let him have that duty anymore. Every single unit has one of those guys in it. Oh, yeah. Every single one without exception. Uh, we've had, we had some beauties back at Beachmasters. They were a riot to work with, but um yeah, you had uh, before you went on to your next assignment. You mentioned uh, that there was some relief, especially for somebody in your position. You had collateral duties that actually got you out of the field from time to time. Yes, I was a pay officer. That was the that was the plum job. Every soldier had to be paid in cash uh, every month, and you, when you came into country, you elected how much money. Um, you would want to receive. You wouldn't receive your entire paycheck because there was nothing to spend your money on. <laughs> so you'd have, uh, you know, $50 or $75 uh, allocated to you. And so an officer would go to the rear. I went to the rear several times and draw this money, uh, come out to the field and pay each soldier his his due. Um, and, it, it, and I would also tried to take care of administrative things that the soldiers needed to have done, uh, personnel adjustments, this sort of thing. So it, it was it was always good for about a two-day trip back to on K to Division Rear, where they had movie theaters and cots to sleep on and uh, cold beer and, and steak, steak dinners. So um, the other officers who were assigned this responsibility, uh, we got our money in a little plastic suitcase. And uh, we, we would usually celebrate once we returned the money or once we picked up the money, uh, we would be flying out. And we would usually have a little bit of a celebration the night before. We know we'd be leaving at six o'clock the next morning. And this one officer uh, just had way too much to drink. He He really oh. let it go. And so we're flying along in this helicopter going back to our unit, and he had to puke. And so he jumped forward. Of course, the doors on the helicopters are, are open. So he jumped forward to puke out the door, and out the door goes his uh, his suitcase of money. And it opened up, and it just spread all this script. It wasn't greenbacks. It was military payment certificates, script. Uh and he he was held personally responsible for that money. Yeah, I I I can't imagine being that guy. You're hungover. It's hot. It's his worst day. <laughs> hot as balls. Yeah, and then this happens. I can't imagine the feeling of hopelessness that guy was experiencing at that point. Okay, so uh, one last thing before we before we get to uh, your orders. Um, and that is, what does this do to you? I mean, you experienced, and I'm not going to get into the details. I think that's best the reader do that. But life and death, intimately, beyond intimately, I mean, uh, the, the, the term blood on your hands is not a figure of speech in this case. What did that do to you? How, how What effect did that have on you? Well, the way I... Um, describe it is that I I had a titanium steel trunk in the back of my mind. This is just my my way of discussing it. And I took all those emotions and all those feelings and 
wrapping people in body bags and firefights and night ambushes. Um, I, I took the horrendous parts and I stuffed it in that trunk and I locked it down. And I just, you, you, I had to become hard, hardened and calloused. Uh, I mean, I, I had no friends in my unit. We, we, we never called each other by name. My name was Foggy Day 16. That was my call sign. And, and my soldiers would address me as 16. Never lieutenant. Never, never salute. My God, never. Yeah, salute. really. Um, Never, sir. The the way you recognize me and the way the enemy might recognize me is I'm the guy that has the map in his thigh pocket. And the radio operator is either walking behind me or in front of me. And he didn't like to walk in front of me. He liked to walk in back of me. And the guy who walked in front of me didn't like to have the no. radio operator walk in front of back of him either. So we were targets. But um, I had this titanium steel trunk in the back of my mind, and I, I just kept it locked down, and, and it hardened me. And for the longest time, I, when I came back, I was still in the Army. So I, I, didn't, I wasn't transitioned into civilian life. I was a regular Army officer, and I went on to my next duty station. And I stayed in the Army for another four years after Vietnam. And um, I just, I never talked about it, never thought about it, uh, just packed it away. And uh, ultimately, about 20 years later, some of that, uh, some of that emotion started leaking out of the trunk. That's the way I describe it. And you lost that resilience of youth. And, 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 and things became real again. And it wasn't nightmares. It was daydreams. It was funny. And I could recollect the situation in in incredible detail. And I would see it. I would see what, what happened. I, it would come back to me. I could even see the colors. And uh, I had a good friend who was a psychiatrist. I had helped her. My, my civilian career was in publishing, so I had helped her get a book published. And um, I went to see her. And she gave me um, an exercise to practice. And it, it made it made those daydreams. I'll call them daydreams. It made them go away. I mean, they didn't it, they didn't go away completely. But um, I could manage it. This uh, this podcast is going to drop on National Vietnam Veteran Memor- Veteran Day. Um, March 29th, March 29th. Um, what? What would you tell guys who are coming back, even guys your age who maybe are still dealing with it, but the younger guys who are coming back from the shit and they're trying to deal with the kinds of situations you're dealing with? What do, what do you tell those guys? Well, I think you can, you can probably recognize the veterans. Um, a lot of them like to wear their ball caps with the uh, insignia on it of their units. We have gray hair and we've got wrinkles. Yeah. And we're starting to walk in the boots of our Korean and World War II uh, brothers. And uh, we're, losing, uh, we're losing Vietnam veterans on a daily basis. We're starting to, to, to reach our age. And um, the, common, the common phrase is, thank you for your service. And, and there's really nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's a, it's a wonderful acknowledgement. But if you really want to have an impact on a Vietnam veteran, if you really want to recognize that you understand and you have a special feeling for those of us who served in that war, you say, welcome home and watch the reaction. Those, those two words are so powerful for Vietnam veterans. You say, welcome home. Uh, because we weren't, we were not welcomed home, and by saying that, you acknowledge this the unique aspects of the war that we fought. Well, the good news is you got through it, and I don't want to keep you too long. I'm watching the clock. Um, you did get orders still in country, but you were able to leave the field as a platoon commander. What was that about? Right. I My secondary specialty was as the adjutant, the S-1. And when I came into country, uh, 
the existing S1 kind of looked at, at my records and saw that I had been an adjutant uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division. And he said, well, if you survive your tour in the field, the officer typically serves six to seven months in the field, and then you get a staff job, we'll make you the S1. And, and I did survive and um, was understudying him. He was getting ready to go back to the world. And I was understudying him. And on about the second day, third day, uh, he said, have you been interviewing at the division headquarters? And I said, no. And he said, well, I just got orders here. You're supposed to go to division headquarters for an interview with the 14th MHD. And I said, oh, really? What, what's <laughs> what the, the hell is that? MHD? <laughs> I don't know. Now, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I like to make sawdust. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I have been working in a wood shop for over 40 years now. Um, my first project was a dining room table. It was the ugliest thing you ever saw in your life. It was a big piece of plywood with the little legs that you screw in the bottom, a little bit of cheap trim, and what was supposed to be cherry stain. It, it turned out to be this ugly orange table. And when you put a jug of milk on it, everybody had to wait for the table to stop wobbling before they could eat again. It was awful. But, and I've said this to people before, who have, who, people all the way, way back when, who saw that table, if I had never built that table, I never would have built a bedroom set for my son, Ken. And I never would have built a four-poster black walnut bed for Phil. And Pat wouldn't have gotten his living room set. These are all things that came out really good that I built later because I stuck with it. But the learning curve was brutal. All my drawings were in my head. Uh, anything that was on paper looked like cave drawings that only I would understand. So I came across a program that I wish I had seen a long time ago. Ted's Woodworking Resources. It includes 16,000 plans. I've seen people who would sell plans for, say, Anirondack shares for 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Worth it. If you can, if you can get a plan for Adirondack chair for 20 bucks and do it the way the plan says you do it, you can make those things and make a lot of money or you can make a lot of gifts. You can decorate your lawn. To, to pay a few bucks for a set of plans is fine. This is 16,000 plans. And I, I got to tell you, I, I would have paid them for the free stuff. It's going to take me forever and a day just to get through the free stuff because there's things I want to build already in there. Uh, Lynette needs a new chair to sit and read on when she sits outside. Her wicker chair is destroyed. So just going with the freebies is great. And you get the 16,000 plans along with the program. So I would definitely, if you're a woodworker and you want to bring the joy back, just the, just making the sawdust, ripping through the tools, getting the job done, and getting that satisfaction, you definitely need to check out Ted's Woodworking. I would absolutely highly recommend it. I'll leave a button or a link in the text below the audio or video line. <laughs> So I got on a helicopter and I flew to the division forward at Camp Evans and I started walking around asking people, where's the 14th MHD? And nobody knew. Finally, one soldier pointed me, said, I think it's down that road about a mile. So I walked down the road and I came to this tent. And outside was a sign that read 14th Military History Detachment. And the motto of the unit was, you fight it, we write it. And I was interviewed by a captain who had gone through every officer's 201 file in the division, looking for somebody who had a journalism, literature background, and there were only three of us in the whole division. And he had interviewed the other two, and they didn't want the job. And I looked around his this this 
office, so to speak, and they had fans and they had a refrigerator with cold, cold Coca-Cola and beer and they had cots to sleep on and they had a shower. And he offered me the job and I said, I'll take it. It's amazing how valuable the little things are. Yep. A cold Coke. You know, I mean, God almighty. So you took that job and uh, you were there for another five, six months? Five, five months, yeah. Okay. Um, Our job, that, my, my job there was to write a quarterly uh, after action report. Each of the battalions had to submit a report uh, on, it was a, a, you know, a formatted report with various different uh, actions that they had taken, lessons learned, field expediences, that sort of thing. And okay. um, occasionally uh, the, the G3, that's the division operations officer, <clears throat> would assign us to go out uh, after a major battle and to uh, I, a sergeant and I would go out and take pictures, interview uh, th those combatants who were left and uh, try to piece the battle back together again. And sometimes what our report of what this of what occurred over one, two, three day battle or longer would be the first uh, true understanding of of what had happened. Uh, those are valuable, too. Um, yep. I've read those reports and I always wondered how did you know, these guys are out there shooting and moving. How do they collect all those crap? It was you guys. That was, that was we, you. We'd interview the soul. You know, we'd interview, we'd go back to the battalion aid station. And if there were people who were lightly wounded, we'd interview them. We'd interview the company commander, the platoon leaders, if they hadn't been killed. Um, but a lot of times that was, you know, these were tragic battles and, and there were a lot of casualties and they had been medevac. So we, this was after the fact, a lot of the yeah. company commander or the company commander would usually talk with us, but the battalion commander, the, the battalion S3, they wouldn't talk with us. It, their, their careers were on the line, especially if, if, uh, if a, if a unit had suffered heavy casualties. Right. That makes perfect sense. And that goes back to the, uh, the, the toe tag with the coordinates on it. That's a data point. It puts, it puts one more dot in the map of everything that had occurred that day. You know, not that that's any consolation to the guy who had to put the toe tag on the guy or the guy who was lost or his parents or whatever. Speaking of parents, again, baby face. How did your parents deal with your tour? What was it like for them? And, and yeah. um, go ahead. I came from a military family. And so, you know, my grandfather went to West Point. My father went to West Point. My brother attended West Point. And, and I turned down an appointment to West Point. So, I mean, a lot of military in my family. We, we even answered the telephone at home. Colonel Bartlett's quarters, may I help you, sir? Wow. As a child, that's how I answered the telephone. Yeah. And, and um, but I'd had enough of the military by the time I reached, uh, by the time I reached college. My father got me an appointment to West Point and I said, nope. I don't want to go to West Point. I don't want the military. I, I've gone to 13 elementary and middle schools and four high schools. That was enough. Was he disappointed you didn't take the appointment? No, I think he he had the foresight to understand that, you know, I had a different uh, perspective. Yeah. And uh, my brother had served, had, had made the military a career. He had been severely wounded in Vietnam and uh, he, he came back. And he never really was the same. I mean, he had severe medical as well as uh, psychological problems uh, as a result of his experience. And um, but it was the height of the war. And between my freshman and sophomore years, I got reclassified. And I said, well, I, I'm not doing that. I'm going to if, if I'm serving my obligation and that's the way we thought about it, I'm serving it as an officer. Right. I went into the ROTC program and. Um, and just it fell it became second nature to me but mm. my parents uh and my family you know we, we we always believed and we always talked about our family was in service and we used those words very sincerely we were in service to our country that was my that was my family's mission that was my family's my father's profession and his father before him and um it it was a very significant it was the mindset uh, that I grew up. Yeah, we're, we're six of seven generations military. 
but it wasn't it wasn't a lifestyle. It's just at some point somebody in each generation strapped on a uniform. We only we only skipped one after I guess it would have been the the uh the great grandparent during the Spanish American War was just not the right age. He was either too young or too old. But other than that, from the Civil War till now, we've we've had a uh a Jordan and in three cases a Matthew Jordan, four cases a Matthew Jordan actually were in the uniform. So it was interesting. So, so I have I have three sons who uh who I put through college and uh the oldest one uh I, I went on orientation weekend uh, when he was beginning college and uh, w- went with him to college and uh, stayed in the dorm. And uh, on, on the last day, we went into this big room where all the clubs were organized around the outside of the building. And in the center was ROTC. And I noticed that one of the officers standing there had a first cab patch on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, come on, Jason, let's go talk to the ROTC and just find out more about it. And I had these visions in my mind that because they were paying the soldier, the, the ROTC cadets very, very well in those days. Really? Yeah, they paid, paid for their books and uh, uniforms and clothing and, and uh, gave them a really substantial tuition to sign up. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm talking with this uh, major and we're, we're swapping stories about uh, being in the cab. And, and uh, I said, I, uh, after talking with him for about five minutes, I turned and said, Jason, what do you think of? And he was gone. His mother had programmed him. He, she said, don't you go near that ROTC <laughs> department. So my three sons, my three sons uh, have had civilian careers or have civilian careers, but then, no military whatsoever. Yeah, they broke that damn tradition. <laughs> My wife did, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you said, as you referred to earlier, um, there was no big giant welcome home. For a lot of guys, one day one day you're getting shot at, the next day you're on a plane, next day you're home. Boom. And from everything I've heard from a lot of guys, that was a lonely goddamn experience. What was it like for you? Well, it was different for me because I, as I mentioned before, it was a regular army. Uh, I was a regular army officer, and um, I had uh, I had not received orders in Vietnam for my next duty assignment, and I had filled out this form called a dream sheet and uh, put down I'd like to be assigned to the West Coast, and I didn't get orders, and I didn't get orders, and I finally talked my boss into letting me go to Saigon for a three day trip. Uh, to uh, ostensibly to buy art supplies for our unit and also to find out what my orders were. And I, uh, on the third day, I said, well, I guess I better figure out. We, we had a good time there. And uh, on the third day, I said, well, I guess I better go find out where my or- what my orders are. And I worked my way through MACD headquarters uh, to this big, giant gymnasium. And um, it was a gymnasium. They had the basketball hoops pulled up. And on the floor of the gymnasium were all these low trays with punch cards. Uh, Fortran punch computer programming was the was the com- computer program of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each card represented a soldier in Vietnam. So we went down the line alphabetically. Bartlett, you know, A's to B's to Bartlett to Bartlett Peter, Par- Bartlett John. And whoop, pulled my card. Oh, you're going to Seattle, Washington. And I said, oh, Fort Lewis. And they said, no, this says Fort Wainwright. And I said, Fort Wainwright? I, I went to high school in Seattle, Washington. There's no Fort Wainwright in Seattle or even in the state of Washington. And we went to a directory. We had to go find a directory to look up where Fort Wainwright was. And Fort Wainwright is located in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah. So I went, I went from the fire to the freezer. So what was it like cutting? I mean, actually getting back to the world what was that experience well that was an unusual experience because um i went to vietnam on may the 9th 1968 and i came back exactly one year on may the 9th 1969 which was very unusual because yeah you, you couldn't predict exactly when but it just happened to turn out that way and interestingly my wife was born on may the 9th and my youngest son was born on may the 9th and I have played five nine in every possible con- configuration and never won a thing. 
But um, it's still your lucky day, though. <laughs> it's still my lucky day. But uh, uh, in in the military, they, they even in the military, they did not talk about it. It was as if it didn't happen. Mm. And um, when when my flight landed, and I remember my father was in the had transferred from the army to the air force at the end of World War II. And he had uh, worked his way up to the rank of full colonel. So he's retired at this point in time. And he and my mother met every, because I I, re- I wrote him a letter and I said, I'll be there. I'll be returning somewhere between May the 7th and May the 10th. That, that was the window that they gave me. And they met every returning flight from Vietnam. And they got of at least army you know they didn't they didn't meet the marines they only met right. the army and my flight landed at about 11 o'clock at night and i looked out the window of that airplane and on the other side of the fence i saw two people standing there and i said those are my parents and sure enough i got off the plane now we were all dressed the same in fatigues and I walked up to my mother on the other side of the fence. And it wasn't until I got to about two feet in front of her that she recognized me. And I kissed her through the fence. Oh. And I said, how in the world did you know? And, she, and my father said, well, I just met every flight. Every yeah. flight. You can't miss if you get them all. <laughs> That's amazing. So that was my return. And then they protected me because they knew what was going on in terms of protests and whatnot. And they just put yeah. me in the bar and drove me back home. And I got ready to move uh, to my next duty assignment. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing story. I had big plans for this event. I have a green screen now. Pretty cool. It looks pretty good. But I couldn't get mama and the dog out of the house. <laughs> so... So I'm back in my August studios, my grandchildren's bunk room. But yeah, I got to say, I mean, it, it was it was fascinating to bring you on. I know that you went on to other things. I think you did. Did you do Germany for a while? No, no, no. After after Alaska, I went to the infantry school at Fort Benning, Georgia, and that's where right. I finished. Right. Okay. And uh, your background. Uh, working historically and journalistically helped you in your further career. It did. I, I had a, a really a wonderful final assignment at Fort Benning, Georgia, in the leadership department. I was put as the operations officer uh, in charge of a, a responsibility for creating a, a course called Leadership for Professionals that was implemented army-wide. And wow. we prepared readings, book of readings and course outlines and overhead transparencies. Yeah. These, yeah. The days before PowerPoint, right? Those hateful things, yeah. And we brought in uh, an officer and an NCO from every unit uh, in, in the army. And they became, we trained the trainers and then they went back to their units and every officer and every NCO was required to take this course of instruction. So that kind of set me on the road to my civilian career, which was in publishing. Mm-hmm. Well, you got through it. You're here. Uh, I hope everybody who sees this will take your story and put it in perspective and consider the ramifications of uh, wild-eyed speculation and and the easy uh, the easy way we tend to say, oh, the United States ought to do this, the United States ought to do that. Send in th- the troops. Say again? Send in the troops. Send in the troops. Well, I yeah, I say the United States ought to think real goddamn carefully as to what's going to happen in the next five to ten years. It's going to be a different planet very, very soon. We can do it easy or we can do it hard. And I want everybody to think about the price of doing it the hard way. So I really appreciate you being here with us. So, of course, I want to mention uh, my website. Yes, yes. www.robinbartlettauthor.com. And uh, there's a lot of information there that vets will find very interesting. I have videos and 
reviews of my book and uh, some photographs, uh, uh, interesting blogs, uh, some resources. And uh, you can you can also order a copy of my book autographed with free shipping. That's right. Yeah. And we will we will have uh, we will have images. You'll see Robin of Vietnam will have his book featured uh, and his website uh, on the finished finished copy. You're probably looking at it as I speak now on Wednesday, the 29th. Captain, it was awesome. Thank you very much. And welcome home. Thank you so much. It was great. You have to be a great day. Thank you. There's one episode that we didn't actually cover uh, that I meant to, but it did get past us. We covered a lot of stuff. But uh, Captain Bartlett is also a Purple Heart recipient. Uh, He was in a situation where they were ambushed, and two of his guys had gotten too far ahead of the patrol, and he was trying to get them back when he took a mortar round close aboard, uh, got his bell rung so badly that his men thought he was dead, and he got cut open pretty badly, and he was bleeding out. Uh, But fortunately, as you can see from his presence here, he did survive the experience. It's an interesting read, that part of the story, and I'll let you get the details from the book. Thanks for visiting the P4B. Please make liberal use of all the buttons and links that support the podcast and help it grow. And do consider becoming a P4B Plus subscriber to get our content ad-free. Send inquiries to poriverproductions at gmail.com.